0: Greetings everyone, I'm Sophia Chai, Assistant Director of the ASHP Innovation Center, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting, focusing on innovation in pharmacy. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. My goal is to use these methods to remove the anxiety around taking medications. To make it so that people aren't so worried about the side effects that occur. If they do occur, maybe at least we know about them. We know their likelihood, we know who's most likely to have them, and we can give that information. At the very least, we'd like to make informed decisions about taking medications. Too many people are taking medications and unaware of the effects. Adverse drug reactions are a major cause of morbidity and mortality around the world. Up to 6% of hospitalizations in the U.S. can be attributed back to adverse drug reactions, and it costs the healthcare industry billions of dollars annually, hundreds of billions of dollars annually. Some recent literature review shows that up to 20% of patients actually stop, medications or are taken off of medications because of the adverse reactions that they cause. And adverse reactions, you can see actually the anxiety around taking adverse reactions in social media posts, the way people talk about drugs and the drugs that they are prescribed. I already kind of said this, early 90s when women started being not designated a special subgroup and included. And they, adverse reactions account for a larger proportion of hospitalizations in children. And that's for exactly the reason we were just talking about, is that there are not good data on drug side effects in children. And what I like to do is use medicine's digital exhaust. Every time you interact with your pharmacy entry order system, you're generating data. You're leaving a trail of information and information that is extremely valuable to reanalyze and use for research. So we use electronic health records. We use publicly available data from the FDA, like the adverse Event reporting system. We use the clinical trials, of course, when they're available. We use all the products of the practice of medicine to study these effects. And to just give you a sense of the size of these, this is at Columbia alone. patient database, RHR, contains data going back to the late 90s on about 6.5 million patients. And for these patients, in the structured data, we have 100 million drug prescriptions over the last 20 years, 170 million diagnoses, 83 million procedures, over 1 billion measurements. That's everything from the height and weight that's collected routinely glucose labs, cholesterols, genetic assays, all of that is put into and grouped together as these measurements. And then on top of that structured data, we have the incredibly rich source of information that is the notes. The notes are where the real story lies, as we all know, and they are incredibly valuable. We have 100 million notes on these patients. The average patient record, we estimate, has about a half a million data points in it. And the average patient generates about 80 megabytes a year of data. And this is data that's very easy to compress, so it's quite a bit of data. This doesn't count the other stuff like images, that's big and, and outside of this. But there's larger collections of these as well. Using the Marcus scan database, which can be licensed from IBM, which is a collection of Medicare, Medicaid data, you can get access to this type of data for 150 million patients. That's five and a half billion different pro- drug prescriptions, uh, eight billion diagnoses, eight billion procedures, two and a half, almost three billion different measurements. And those are available to do some research on as well. There's also large initiatives like the UK Biobank that take this type of information and then integrate that with other sources of data that can be useful, genetic data, transcriptomic data. We can see the expression of of certain genes in different tissues in the body. All of Us is the United States' response, basically, and to an effort to really diversify these data. UK Biobank has been a great resource for the global community, but it has been so focused, it just has UK citizens, and so it has biases in terms of the ancestral populations that are not representative of everyone on the planet. All of Us is amplifying the representation of these underrepresented groups in the United States. It's a real big focus on diversity. As of now, and these are actually even maybe a month or two old, half a million participants, 275,000 of which have electronic health record histories available, and 340,000 have molecular samples available. I think they did their first release of about 100,000 genomes just a couple months ago. In addition to that, there's other initiatives like, like Odyssey, which is the Observational Health Data Science Initiative that brings together EHRs from around the world, different Hospital systems can participate. Anyone can participate, actually. It's a collection of researchers and data providers. And you can run analyses on a billion patient records from all around the world by engaging with those collaborators. It's all in a federated way, but it's done in a way so that I can run an analysis at Columbia and I can ship that to my 30 closest friends in Odyssey and I can have them run it on their data. and We can aggregate that together. We've published many studies that way it probably come as no surprise that development is really important for pediatric care and treatment. So of course, the stage of development will affect the diseases that could be experienced, that could develop, how they are treated, and their patient's response to a drug. Physical, mental, and emotional milestones all can influence these outcomes. Here I'm showing you a few different graphs that all say the same thing, which is that pediatric development is highly variable across time. In the top, you can't see it here, but in the top right graph is differences in metabolizers expression. So there's a bunch of cytochrome P450s in here, there's a bunch of transporters in here, And what we're showing is that their expression is dynamic and changes across childhood. So on the x-axis in this plot is the age of a child, and the y-axis is expression value, relative expression value, and you can see that they kind of go all over the place. There's differences in brain development, Uh, there's differences in hormone levels as patients age, differences in hormone levels can have big effects on the effectiveness and safety of drugs. Here's an example of valproic acid and liver failure. Valproic acid is an anti-seizure medication, it's commonly used, and its metabolism is critical for its function and its safety. There is large changes found in the metabolism of valproic acid across different age groups. An increased metabolism at very young ages resulted in an increase of the likelihood of toxicity. So this is a known age-dependent toxicity that exists for valproic acid. But our knowledge here is very limited. While we have just a few examples, we don't have any systematic data on all of the effects that could be caused or risks we should watch out for. And they're based on relatively few trials or case reports. Most cases, the evidence is anecdotal. And as I said, they don't cover all events. We want to use these machine learning technologies to systematically identify these potential risks. Our strategy here is to take our database, either from electronic health records or the FDA's adverse event reporting system, and stratify it by important development milestones. And then we can lay a model on top of those milestones to identify significant risks. We think that by tying it to the development biology, we can produce better signals of drug safety. This is just showing you the rough data set. So the FDA's adverse event reporting system has a lot of adverse event reports in it. Probably as of now around 14 million adverse event reports, which is a good amount of data. Unfortunately, only a very small proportion of that are for children. So of this data set over the last, since 2004, about 17 years, we have about 260,000 reports that are for children. So relatively small compared to the overall data set. We uh, use any data up to from zero days to 21 years old in this analysis. Now because there's only 260,000 reports A lot of drug and adverse reactions have missing data. We don't have enough reports to really estimate every age group for every drug for every side effect. And just to show you, this kind of shows you highlights of that. 91, 92% of adverse reactions have at least one of these development stages completely missing. And in fact, 66% of them have six stages missing and only have one stage. There's seven stages total. 80% have five stages missing. So the data is almost completely missing. And this is our major challenge with using this data set, is that for most age groups, we simply don't have the reports to make these estimates. So how can we perform an analysis when we have no data? And our answer is to borrow it. And what we mean by that is that Development stages are not independent of each other. A person who is in puberty is going to be more similar to an adolescent than, let's say, an infant or an adult. And so, adjacent development stages can actually give us information about each other. So by sharing information across development stages, we can boost the power in that specific stage while still getting a specific estimate. So if we have no reports for one of these stages, let's say we have no reports for this toddler stage, then we can share information from the adjacent stages. I wish you saw my cursor, but I guess not. What happens if I click? Probably nothing. Okay. we can use information from the adjacent stages to fill in the blanks. We use a method called generalized additive models to perform this, and it's been used for lots of similar types of data sharing, most commonly across geography. In a geographical analysis, places that are closer together in location will be more similar to each other, in weather, in the people that live there, in environmental exposures, whatever it might be. And so these are used very commonly in ecology and geology. But we want to adapt these approaches to use in drug safety. We introduced the DGAM, which is a Development general, Generalized Additive Model to f- for our specific implementation that focuses on childhood stages of development and scoring adverse drug reactions. There are several different approaches we could have used, and this is why we chose GAMS. So we could model the risk as a function of age. However, this we found was highly prone to false discoveries and did not generalize well when the model assumptions were, validated, uh, were violated, which they often were. We could model each stage independently, but that doesn't solve this problem of missing data for many of the stages. And so, ultimately, that leaves us with this data sharing technique, this generalized additive model, as the best balance between the two. The disadvantage of using this type of model is it's very computationally complex, and it does take a lot of compute power to fit. Fortunately, we have a lot of servers. We did show that using this method, you could have very few reports for any single stage and still get accurate estimates of risk of adverse events. And so in this one, what we're showing is a generalized additive model versus a traditional technique. The generalized additive model is in red and the traditional technique is in blue. Um, And we're able to get a much stronger signal. We're able to recover more of the true positives. Our power is higher, statistical power is higher when we use the GAMs. we can it's higher even when all we go all the way down to zero reports. And you can see, once you go to zero reports, for the traditional way of doing it, you end up with zero power. You can't do anything. So that's great. We're also able to show that you can recover known childhood adverse drug effects. So we have a small set of known risk factors for children from previously curated data sets. And we show that using our GAMs, you're able to more robust re- robustly and rigorously identify them. This one is Montelukast and paranoia. So we took this method that we previously, that we just validated, showed you the evidence for, and we apply it to the entire database of FDA's adverse event reporting system to identify pediatric side effects. And we find some really cool things. Don't worry about not being able to read this from the back. I'm just gonna tell you what these are. So each of these plots, is on the x-axis shows the development stage, with the left side of the x-axis being the youngest and the right side being the oldest. The bar is showing you the number of associations for that group of adverse events, and each individual graph is a different category of adverse events. So for example, the one that is highlighted is called congenital, familial, or genetic disorders. And as we expect, this occurs mostly for patients who are very young. So you see that newborns are where most of these associations occur. Without running our analysis, all of these would be flat. You wouldn't be able to differentiate them. But with running our analysis, you're able to see and get this expected result. Uh, Here's endocrine disorders. You can see that endocrine disorders peak around adolescence when hormones are changing and, and levels are going up, as we expect. Immune system disorders, you can see these peak not at the newborn stage, but at a little bit older than that, in the infant, late infant and toddler stages. That's exactly what you expect. That's when the immune system is really booting up. In the first few months, as we know, uh, it hasn't really quite developed yet. It's one of the last systems to develop. So that's great. So these results are really showing us, really, what they're doing is recapturing known development biology. And it makes us feel good that the adverse events that we'll find using this approach will reflect that biology. We find four different patterns of adverse events, which we call plateau in green, increase in orange, inverse plateau in blue, and decrease in pink. And plateau just means at some point during the development process, it peaks, and then it comes back to the adult phase. Increase means that it's highest at adult phase, and it steadily increases from infancy to that phase. Inverse plateau, which we do not see that frequently, troughs at some point during development and then comes back up to the adult, and then decrease is the most for children, uh, for newborns, and then decreases toward the adult levels. Now, there's two different ways that we could expect that adverse events are caused by differences in activity, let's say, of metabolizing enzymes or how development biology affects the function of genes and proteins that are involved with drug metabolism and drug action. And that's either that the drug itself, in its active form, is causing the adverse event, which is represented by Model A, or that some of its metabolites are causing the adverse event, which is represented by Model B. And that has different predictions for how we'd expect these these risks to go. And we can actually use those to differentiate between these two models. So we know we can use this observational data that we generated for adverse events for children and start to come up with mechanistic hypotheses about how they're occurring. Here's some example of that. So here we have SIP one a one And what we find is that drug risk of adverse events is correlated with the activity of CYP1A1. On the left-hand side, you have drug risk. And on the right-hand side, you have the activity of the protein in children. The x-axis, again, is pretty much always child age. So as they get older, the expression of this cytochrome P450 decreases. So this is evidence of Model B. So we're getting some insights in the mechanism. You can contrast that with CYP2C8, which is the third graph. And that's showing you some mixed data. But what you can see is that there's evidence of some Model A. So there's some some primary, the drug primary is causing the adverse event, primarily causing the adverse event, and not a metabolite. So now that we have this ability to use our predictions of childhood adverse events. We've shown they recapture known development biology. We've shown statistically that they're better, better in lots of simulations and in some real data. And we've shown that we can integrate it with molecular data to come up with hypotheses. Let's go back to the Montelukas example. Montelukast is a leukotrin receptor antagonist. And so we compared montelukast to other in uh, receptor antagonist in our database. Montelukast was associated with significant risk of these 19 psychiatric adverse events, and that's expected, that's what we expect, and we recaptured that using our approach. But our control drug that was also a leukotriene receptor antagonist was only associated with one of those, despite having adequate data. On the right, montelukast is also a 5-lipoxygenase, antagonist. So we compared Montelukast to two control drugs that are also five lipoxygenase antagonists. And all three drugs showed significant associations to pediatric adverse events. So these two analyses taken together are starting to point to a mechanism for Montelukast. Now this would have to be validated. This is extremely early stage for this research. But it means that we can use completely observational data, we can integrate that with publicly available expression data, and we can come up with molecular hypotheses for currently unknown etiologies of adverse drug events. We think it's because of this interaction. Now, these GAMS are powerful because they are sharing information across childhood development that allows us to run this analysis, even in the absence of data for our particular subgroups. Um, but of course, there are some limitations if we are comp- computationally intensive and our biological hypotheses require some follow-up. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to visit www.ashp.org innovation for more ways ASHP is helping to innovate pharmacy practice. And check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Sophia Chai from ASHP Official, and thank you for listening.